You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Happy hump day everybody and welcome back to the fall sessions. This is the fifth episode within this series and today Aaron and myself we're going to be talking about hunting gear and equipment and uh, I know I, I talk all about that on the hunting gear podcast but it all kind of ties in together and I wanted to get his opinion I wanted to take a couple deep dives into things like arrow weight and uh, what they're what you're looking for in a bow and uh, some of the more important topics uh, when talking about your bow your arrows your accessories not necessarily things like camo pattern or you know boots or things like that but more into the actual what makes bow hunting bow hunting uh, from a gear uh, perspective so that's what uh, we're talking about today um let's see kind of a recap i have not done other than e-scout i have not done anything uh as far as uh deer related topics i got my lumber delivered today i'm gonna be working on my deck this upcoming weekend uh some honeydew stuff i gotta knock out but i've had back-to-back weekends of baseball tournaments and so uh i will be working at home and plan on staying as home at home as much as possible this weekend in order to get this deck done so that by the time uh state baseball rolls around that's a big ordeal we got some more uh we don't have any more tournaments other than the state tournament and jesus man i just remember when i was a kid baseball was in the summer uh springtime was what was springtime uh, summer, fall was football, winter was basketball or wrestling, and sp- spring was just a very short period of time before baseball started. I don't even like. I don't even remember playing soccer when I was a kid. But now with these club teams, man, if you're not in it right now, you don't have a chance of playing ball in the the area that I in the area of the state that I live. If you're not in a club team and your kid is not playing baseball you know, throughout the entire summer. And like, we're playing 26 games of baseball plus four tournaments this, uh, this year. And so that is, um, that is absurd to me, but it's, that's really the only option other than T-ball. So there's these very small, these small towns have up until a certain point, but then when your kid gets good enough, there's nothing above that. And so the next step is these club teams and, 
I'm telling you right now, the politics in this is absolutely ridiculous, especially for baseball. I didn't, I didn't encounter it at all during football, haven't encountered it at the community level uh, with other baseball or, or soccer, but that baseball, man, holy cow, parents are just vicious, you know, tell, oh, throwing, like, that we were at one tournament and not one, but four parents got kicked out of one tournament for arguing with the ref. So, whatever. Uh, floats your boat, I guess. It, it's it's uh, it's new to me. I'm trying to learn it and navigate it. And uh, I know I, I got some other buddies who have some kids who have already gone through it. And so uh, it's interesting to hear them say, yeah, yep, you're, you're going to have that. So uh, my daughter went to a wrestling tournament. It was called a Wrestle Like a Girl tournament in uh, Coralville, Iowa. It's pretty close to where we live. And I feel so bad for her. I said to her, hey, do you want to go wrestle in this tournament? You are going to be wrestling some really tough girls. And she said, yes, let's go do it. I'm like, are you sure? She's like, yes. And we get there. and we're, uh, She weighs in, and she weighs in uh, 70.3 pounds. And so that 0.3 pounds puts her into the next category that goes 70 to 75 pounds. And no big deal. We've wrestled girls that were heavier than her before, and she did okay. So I, I pull up the bracket of who she's going to be wrestling that day, and I was looking for the match numbers so the um, so I know when and what match she needs to be on at what time. And she taps on one of the girls' names in, tra- in this uh, program called Track Wrestling. And one of the girls was... 80 and 7 80 and 7 and my daughter was 3 and 3 and so I looked at this and I was just like uh oh and so she spent the rest of the day all 5 matches she she made improvements during each match which was great to see but they all ended in the worst possible way and that was getting pinned uh, and she was very upset to the point where, like, I don't know if I want, I don't know if she's going to continue wrestling. And that's a disappointment because she, she has the, she has the ability to be tough. And so as a child or as a, as a, a father, I'm trying to balance how hard to push my kids on this and, and when to let them ride. But it's hard when they want to go into a scenario you want to you want to encourage them to go do that these things that they love but maybe try to find the right tournaments or the right uh level to get them in because she got worked really hard all five of her matches and so uh anyway the the moral of the story is uh um that wrestling is hard and she knows that now and she knows what she needs to do if she wants to uh, keep going and get better uh other than that Good, good episode today. Hopefully you guys enjoy the uh, my boring life. Hopefully you guys enjoy this podcast. Uh, Aaron and I BS it out real good. Uh, and other than that, man, oh, crap. I almost forgot how I actually get paid, and that is by doing these commercials for you. So uh, right now we're going to talk about four companies quick today. We're going to talk about Tethered. If you are, guys are looking for a saddle, 
If you guys are looking for accessories, platforms, if you're looking for climbing sticks, saddle, uh, Tethered is the one-stop shop for you guys, along with all of that gear and equipment, very high quality, by the way. They have created this community. And within this community, there is a bunch of knowledgeable people, not only from the, the, uh, the uh, saddle hunting part of it, they can teach you tips and tricks and modifications and things that you can do to you know, cut the learning curve when it comes to uh, saddle hunting, but just some really great people who love deer hunting just like we all do. So uh, go check out tetherednation.com and uh, check out all of the uh, all of the products that they offer. Uh, next on the list, we have Wasp Archery. Again, in my opinion, it is the heavy metal of broadheads. Uh, I, I love the design. I love the materials that they, they use. If you haven't had the opportunity Go back and listen to a hunting gear podcast I did with Fred Doherty a while ago, and he breaks Wasp down entirely for for us in that podcast. Uh, the materials are the best of the best. The design is the best of the best, and a majority of their heads are still made within the United States. So that's a very big win. You know, if you want to go, if you want to support uh, an American company, go support Wasp. Outside of that. I just feel confident using their heads, man. And I know that whenever I put a broadhead into a deer, it's going to do a lot of damage, whether it's a, you know, a broadside double lung or it's a marginal quartering towards or away shot that where you just kind of hope everything works out the, the right way. And, uh, man, my success of finding the deer after I shoot it, whether it's a, a dead nut shot or whether it's a, a marginal shot, it, it just goes up with wasps. So uh, lots of destruction there, wasparchery.com. Discount code NFC20 for 20% off. NFC20 for 20% off. Uh, next on the list, we have Vortex Optics. Uh, at, like... I'm getting ready to go up to Vortex next week, and uh, I'm going to be eating some steaks with the with the guys. I'm going to be drinking some old fashions. Wisconsin does it a little bit different, but I'm going to be drinking some old fashions. I'm going to be uh, recording some podcasts. I'm going to be learning about some of the new equipment that these guys are binos and uh, stuff that these guys are putting out. And then after that, uh, just try to record as much content and then come home and, and be a dad again. So. Uh, Spending one night up there at Vortex. If, uh, I don't know, if you see me driving down the interstate, honk and I'll wave. Uh, let's see, vortexoptics.com. So if you're looking for uh, binos, if you're looking for, uh, you know, they have the new Triumph HD, that thing's badass. Uh, so go take a look at that. Make sure that you guys check out, check out their social feeds. Make sure you check out their podcast. Make sure you check out uh, a whole bunch of stuff from Tethered, or excuse me, from Jiminy uh, Christmas. I'm going dumb. From Vortex. Make sure you check all of it out because they're introducing new stuff all the time. Uh, they have the VIP warranty. You break it, eat it, poop it out, smash it, put it in a box, send it back to them. They will fix it for free and then send it back to you. So uh, VIP warranty, uh, vortexoptics.com. And last but not least, hunt stand. Uh, dude, it's e-scouting time, right? It, because I'm busy with all the all this kid activity, I'm e-scouting. And the best way to do that is with some of the best digital imagery that there is in a hunting app uh, and a variety of digital imagery uh, on a hunting app, and that's hunt stand. 
And so I love just cruising, you know, hunt stand, looking for the landowners, looking for the access routes, looking for uh, pinch points, looking for parking, you know, looking for camp, you know, camping areas, looking for water on some of my Western hunts. And uh, then you just, you know, you just sit there and you, you analyze where you think a stand would go and then the best way to access it on specific wind directions. And so that's what I'm that's what I'm doing right now with HuntStand. So if you want to read up on all the all the functionality HuntStand offers, please go and visit HuntStand.com. And while you're there, check out the Pro Whitetail platform. And that is the commercials, ladies and gentlemen. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen. I really appreciate you guys listening to the uh, listening to the commercials because that's how I get paid. Please go and support the companies that support this podcast. And uh, man, we got to remember the good vibes, right? So uh, let's get into today's episode. Three, two, one. All right, this is the fifth installment of the fall sessions right here on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. And I'm back with Aaron, the host of the fall podcast. That's why we're calling it the fall sessions. So um, how you been, dude? Good, man. Good. Uh, good long weekend. Um, went to the lake, had some fun, went to a niece's birthday party, and now here we are. It's TAC week here in Michigan, so total, total Archery Challenge. You know, as we're recording, this is going to happen in two days, so I'll be heading up north for that, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, man. Awesome. All right. Um, you love baseball, right? I do, yeah. Actually, let me back up. I've never been to a TAC event what's it like is it is it worth going to at least one in your life 100 percent. i've been um three or four now i think um but it, it's it's a lot of fun as far as like every year it gets bigger i feel like and i've only been to the michigan one but yeah there's so many like-minded people and the cool thing about it is you don't even have to go shoot like there's a whole bunch of vendors there so you can go walk around their vendors and and just kind of you know talk to whoever might be there exodus might be there or latitude or hoyt or whoever you know um and you can a lot of those people are running show specials too so you can buy stuff there but i'll tell you what even if you want to go and just uh, register and shoot like the practice Mm -hmm. range and stuff like that it's a lot of fun i will say you know i've done i think i've done three now i will say it's like the nostalgia just kind of wore off for me. Like going up there this weekend, I, I work for latitude. So I'll yeah. be working the booth. Like, I really don't care if I shoot or not. Like, yeah. it's just, it's not something I'm like, Oh, I gotta go do it. Like yeah. for me, I've been there. I've, I've shot the courses. Now I'm like, ah, I just kind of want to go and, and hang out with the people. You know what I mean? And right. just kind of and talk. So right. right. that's where I'm at. Yeah. I've, I've put some thought into going to one, one of the closer ones here. And uh, I think the closest one is either in, man, it's going to be, I think the Michigan one is probably one of the closest ones for me. Really? Yeah. I don't even know where they have their events these days, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it it seems like fun, but I'll be honest. If someone said to me, Hey, all expense paid to a attack event, I would probably just go to watch and hang because I, my bow needs a new string and I am not, I haven't even, I'm not even close to getting it set up. So I need to take <laughs> it into the shop, get a new string put on it and then start shooting again. So. 
for sure. I, it's one thing that I think everybody should do at least once yeah. and then just kind of, you know, if you want to do more, then do more. But it, it is a good event. It is really cool. And and like I said, up in Michigan, there's going to be other podcasters there, but there's going to be a lot of like, you know, I'm in Michigan. So that's where my core listener group mm-hmm. is. So that's what a lot of people like to to hang out, come by the booth and talk and you know kind of meet us and and get to know us and then i'm going to be doing some podcasts up there too so i also look at it as like a way to get content done you know and maybe get four or five podcasts in the in the bank so i look at for i look at it that way now yep absolutely all right so now baseball all right um our little league team man we got in the last week we played a game i believe on wednesday then we had, no, no, yeah, a game on Wednesday. Then we had a tournament where we played three games. Uh, uh, so that's four games in like a four day, four or five-day period. And so what's cool is that our team is starting to come out of its shell, um, some of the kids anyway. And so like my son is one of them. He was, he was uh, not doing very well right at the beginning, but now he's comfortable in the batter's box. And so now he's starting to hit. Uh, same thing, we had one kid who's just, like, I feel if any kid's going to put one over the fence this year as an eight-year-old, it's going to be this kid. And so um, he's starting to swing the bat, and he's feeling comfortable in the, in the box. And so we had um, – have you ever seen the movie Moneyball? With Brad Pitt. Oh, yeah. Yep. Love it. And so that whole entire movie is based off of Sabermetrics, the, um, you know, the statistical, you know, um, long story short, if you haven't seen the movie, what what um, Sabermetrics is, is a guy came up and he's putting together a baseball team based off of nothing but statistics, not, hey, how's this guy look? You know, how hard of a worker is he? It it's, has nothing to do with, like, a gut feeling. It's all 100% based off of statistics. And so, um, you know, I, I'm, I hope nobody who is on the team listens to this, but our top three batters in the order were, were number one and number two in strikeouts. And so I looked up how to calculate and how to make a batting order based off of sabermetrics. And and so now, hopefully coming out of this tournament, the next tournament, uh, and this is not up to me, it's up to the coach. I, I'm an assistant, so I put it together. And hopefully we can get some of our better kids, uh, better hitters, uh, and kids with better on-base percentage higher up in the – because our I think our eighth batter has – like a 685 on base percentage. So he's either hitting or he's getting walked. And he he has like a four something batting average right now. And so, uh, but he was eight. I'm like, we want this kid to to be on base as much as humanly possible or to be at bat as much as humanly possible. So, um, so our team played really well this weekend. Uh, We had an example where the kid, the kid with the most strikeouts was, the last batter of the game with people in running position. And so it didn't work out, but we played awesome uh, this, this weekend. We, we lost to some really good teams. We beat a, a, a an okay team. And so uh, anyway, baseball, I'm, I'm starting to fall back in love with baseball 
and just like the statistics of it. Like I, I love looking mm-hmm. at batting average and digging into how'd this guy get on base or how did, how, what's his yep. slugging percentage and things like that. No, I agree. And that's, that's why I love baseball. Like, you, you know, we're big Detroit Tigers fans. So like when we go to a game, I'm the guy that still to this day, I'll have, I'll buy a, uh, the book, you yep. know, that you can keep the score and everything. And I write the scores in and all that in the games. And, um, you know, to kind of go back to your point about like you have a kid lower in the batting average. Now, this is not going to like really mean much when they're that young. But when you start getting into like varsity baseball mm-hmm. in, in, in high school and into college, you know, typically hitters later in the lineup are going to see more fastballs. Yeah. Um. So like you might have a kid that might be hitting seven, eight or nine that has a really good on base percentage or average because typically they're going to see more fastballs lower in the lineup. And then also you can hide kids. You can hide guys behind hitters. You know yeah. what I mean? And typically the rule of thumb is your third hitter is your best hitter on yeah. your team. Typically, yep. Yep. you know? Um, so it's that whole side of things is really cool. And then for me watching a game, like I love dissecting counts. Like this guy's like when I watch a game on TV, it's like, it's a, you know, one and two count. Like what, what's this pitcher going to throw? Yeah. You know, what would I throw? Where would I, and I like to try to validate my thought process and what that pitcher does. Yep. So I, I just love baseball, man. Oh, it yeah. makes you think constantly. Yeah. And that's what I love about it. And these kids, they get so worked up. They get so worked oh, up yeah. when they strike out um, or they, you know, they make an error or something like that. And it's yeah. strikeouts mostly, but, you know, we you got a kid that's batting 500. No, actually, he's batting like uh, 790 this year on our team. So he's almost automatic. Wow. He's almost automatic, and he'll cry when I'm like. And so we are we we go with the dude. You would be in the Hall of Fame if you had. You would hold all the records if you had this batting average in the major leagues Mm -hmm. and hopefully that motivates him or at least tells him to stop crying. I I, I didn't realize until this year coaching kids that it is necessary as a baseball player to have a very short memory and be able to get over whatever problem you just had so that the next pitch you're back on point. Yep. A hundred percent. And like, you know, the whole adage and the whole saying goes, is like, you know, in baseball, you can fail 70% of the time and you, you'll probably be a hall of famer. Exactly. You know, anybody that hits around 300 as a career. I mean, I was looking at stats the other night just cause I was going down a rabbit hole, but Tony Gwynn, mm-hmm. Tony Gwynn is arguably one of the best hitters to ever play Period. the game. Yeah. His career batting average was like 333, like yeah. something like that career. And I'm yeah. like, that is ridiculous. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's him almost failing 70% of the time. Yeah. And he's the, you know, considered the best hitter ever. Yeah. And he's got, what, what's he's got like 4,000 hits or something like that. 4, I don't think plus. he's, uh, I don't know if he's got four. He's got at least 3,000. I yeah. think, I, I don't know what he has for total hits. Yeah. yeah. Stud. I, but in the whitetail world, if you throw, if you say I'm only going to be successful, well, for me being successful, 33, percent of the time would mean that I only shoot three bucks every 10 years. And to me, that's not good. Like that's not good, but based off of tag filling statistics, that's a, like, I I think what's the success rate for some of these elk draws out or for some of these, uh, 
elk and deer hunts across the nation, it's like 10%, like success rate yeah. on, on some of these, yeah. ta- filling some of these tags is 10%. So yeah, something like that. if you compare it to that, then, uh, then, you, then you're doing pretty good. Yeah, so right here I'm looking at Tony Gwynn's stats. He was a 338 career hitter. He had 3,141 hits. So for anybody that's not a baseball person, if you can reach 3,000 hits in the major leagues, that is like astronomical. Not yeah. everybody does that. There's mm-hmm. a fraction of people that do that. So who who's uh who's above him? Do you have that in front of you? I'm gonna say Pete Rose is probably he's number one above him. Yeah. Um, let me look. Of course, for those who are listening, we are going on a huge, uh, down a huge rabbit hole right now that has nothing yeah. to do with whitetails. <laughs> uh, actually, so there's a lot of people, or not, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's a, quite a few people ahead of him. So Pete Rose has 4,206 hits. He's got the most. Then Ty Cobb, 4,189. Hank Aaron, Stan Musial, uh, Trish Speaker, Derek Jeter's got 3,400. Honus Wagner, Carl Yuskrimski, Albert Pujols, Paul Molander, you know, you got... They're all over 3,000. Yes. Okay. So where the line stops is Roberto Clemente had 3,000. He was number 33 on the list. And uh, Tony Gwynn's number 21. So, I mean, Pete Rose, arguably, is probably the best hitter, but obviously there's an asterisk by his name because of his gambling stuff. But, I mean, God... 4,256 hits, Dan. That's ridiculous. Man, and, and that's, I mean, let the dude in the Hall of Fame, man. I mean, uh, he didn't gamble. He didn't throw any games. He gambled on his own team. Yeah. So, whatever. Anyway, um, <laughs> you have you have some information about deer teeth and uh, aging, aging deer. I want to hear this story. This is hot off the press. Okay, hot. Literally, I just got this right before we get on this call. And so, you know, that like aging deer is always, you know, in in the in the world of whitetails, Mm -hmm. like aging deer, I feel like is like way up there. Yep. You know, like and I, I fall in this bucket, too, as far as, you know, people like. Oh, that was a mature buck Mm -hmm. that he's got he's four years old, five years old, Mm -hmm. six years old. I'm here to tell you, and this might be a hot take, and I don't think, unless you have pictures of you a deer that has a notch in his ear or whatnot, I don't think anybody has an idea of what age is unless you have unless you literally watch that deer grow up mm-hmm. with with some sort of marking. Mm-hmm. And the reason being, okay, so I just I sent three sets of teeth into deer age. Okay. And I just got them back. Now I shot in 2021, I shot a deer in Illinois and I'm going to, I'm going to give you some weights. Cause I, I have all the weights and everything on these deer. So, okay. um, this deer weighed, let me look at this real quick. He weighed 200, 250 pounds on the hook. Okay. We're talking about central Illinois deer. He scored 145. He grossed at 145. He was a 10 point, great looking deer. Um, but it, you know, when you look at him, it's like what I thought he was a four year old. For sure, thought he was a four year old. Comes back to three and a half. 
okay? And I'm like, right there. Like, he is... And those three-and-a-half to four-and-a-half-year-old deer are very hard to, like... Like, that's the line for mm-hmm. me to be like, man, he could be three, he could be four or whatnot. I thought he was four, you know, with, with all of his, you know, features and everything, and he weighed 250 pounds. It's a big deer and everything. I'm like, oh, he came back at three-and-a-half. So that was one thing. Uh, the next one, Ohio, I shot one in 2021, Ohio. He was a, he scored 170 as a typical 10. Okay. As uh growth scored and he weighed 240 pounds on the hoof. He was 11 point. He had some great mass, um, big deer came back at four and a half. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I figured he was four, thought he might be five, but I figured he was at least going to be four. So that one really didn't surprise me too much. So the one that surprised me was this one. Last year, I shot a buck in Michigan. He scored 132 grossed, but he had two broken brows. Mm-hmm. And I figured if you, I figured he'd be a low 140s deer because you could tell they were completely broken. So this deer weighed 220 pounds on the hoof. Gross scored 132 as is. This deer was a big deer. Mm-hmm. This deer's got great mass. And I try not to look at the antlers and the mass and stuff like that and try to discern an age from that. It's just, I try to look at their chest, their body, all that stuff. This deer is one of the bigger deer that I've seen in this area, body-wise and everything, and especially antler-wise. And he came back at three and a half. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I was a little, I was a little, uh, little, not upset, Mm -hmm. but I was like, man, that told me right there that like we just don't know we do not know because you see i'm i'm telling you dan if you would have saw this deer in a bean field or in a field of hunting in michigan or whatever you'd be like gotta be a four-year-old mm-hmm. you know like it looks like a four-year-old he just he he just did yeah and he's three and a half and i'm like you know i hear a lot of guys saying you know especially michigan guys saying like they think that there's more four-year-olds than we actually think. I think you're wrong Mm -hmm. in my area. I, I literally, you could have put a gun to my head and be like, this deer's four. Yeah. You know? Um, so I was a little, little, little upset about that. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, you work so hard and you're trying to kill. And he was a top 10% of the bucks that I have an opportunity at, but I'm like, what do I got to do to get a four-year-old? Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah. I just don't think they're I just don't think they're as prevalent around here as people think. So I have in my office here, I have uh who's that artist? What's his name? Uh Ryan, Ryan Kirby. Kirby. Yep. I have the you might you might have it too. The poster of a one and a half year old next to a two year old, and it then it kind of breaks down all their characteristics. Right of, yep. and I think he got some of that stuff from the the NDA. Okay, so I'm looking at I'm looking at it, and there is very little. There's very little difference between a three year old and a four year old from mm-hmm. from just body size. Right now, you you take you take it even a step further into a five year old category, and I'm just basing this right off the the artwork here, maybe there's a little bit more sway in the back. Maybe the gut yeah. is a little bigger. But then again, I've seen I've seen a hundred and I'm assuming he's a five or a six year old. Huge body, no antlers. Right? A 120, 125 inch 
a 10 pointer, right? And so just like humans, there's so many different variables into how big they get based off of their diet. You know, um, if you're going to base it strictly off teeth wear, what about uh, a deer that eats a ton of grass and clover and not necessarily acorns or, or, you know, corn, shell corn. Mm -hmm. And so, so if you have, uh, just a softer, uh, food that these deer are eating throughout the entire year, their teeth aren't going to wear as much. If you got a deer who he only eats corn and he only eats acorns throughout the year and he, you know, he's heavy into that, then his teeth are going to be way more worn down than, Mm -hmm. let's say, uh, uh, a deer that only eats grass or, you know, because they have favorites, you know, they, they're going to go to what, what's plentiful at that year. And in states like, uh, let's just say South Dakota, Nebraska, on the Western side of the Missouri river, they, those deer are eating a lot of grass. And so their body size will never be as big as, um, as a, a deer here in the Midwest that has all that starch corn and things like that. So there's so many, there's so many variables that, and, and, to top it all off, genetics. And like I told you on the shipwreck episode on your podcast, shipwreck was a eight, nine, you know, he was he was eight, nine, ten years old when he, he was ten years old when he was shot. And I have documentation of almost every single year. And Sam Calora, the guy who shot him, he is a deer breeder, so he knows about deer. He says he's probably a ten year old buck. Okay. He weighed, I want to say, between 200 and 225 pounds, okay? And so, genetically, he was a small-bodied deer. And if you would have taken the rack off of him and put it, it put a 120-inch rack on him, this deer is now not getting looked at at all because it just he has a small body. He had some characteristics of an older deer, but just in a smaller package. And so, yeah, unless I agree with you 100%, like even me, I say, oh, the deer downstairs are four years old, or this one's a two-year-old, or this one's a five- or six-year-old. Nobody really knows. I mean, nope. I don't have trail camera pictures of multiple years of, of, you know, like three or four years of all those deer. So it's a guess, and that's what everybody's doing is they're, they're taking their best guess. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And it's, you know, that deer I was talking about the Michigan deer, I should grab them real quick. I got them right here, but, um, a buddy of mine hunts a, a farm close to where I shot him and actually found that deer's shed, uh, the year before I killed him. Mm-hmm. And I, he gave me the shed and the shed to me screams a three-year-old mm-hmm. like just by the antlers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I, and I just told you a little bit ago, I try not to look at the antlers and and judge a deer off age on that. But when you look at like a three-year-old, what people say they're three-year-olds, and I look at that shed, I'm like, man, that's a three-year-old. Yeah. And then I look at his antlers now as they're sitting there, I'm like, hey, he's a four-year-old. Like, yeah. you know, as as a skull cap, I'm like, he's got great mass. And so it was a little, a little upsetting, but it was also to the point where I'm just like, it just reiterates the fact, like, it doesn't matter the size of the antlers, you just don't know. You don't know. Like you, you, you don't know unless you've seen that deer grow up, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Absolutely. So. Um, I'm looking at a pair of sheds right now in my office that I found like in 2009, eight or nine. So a long time ago. And 
I'm telling you the pedicles on that thing are the size of maybe a quarter or a, like somewhere in between a, a, a nickel and a quarter. Okay. And I would say it's a, there's no brows on them, just little bumps for brows. But we're looking at a 115 inch, I guess it would be an eight because they're just little bumps for brows. But with the pedicles that are very tiny. And so I look at that and I go, that deer genetically is gifted because that's the pedicle size is like a, a one-year-old or a two-year-old. So mm-hmm. potentially the first set of antlers that this buck ever grew was 115 inches, 110 inches. It's nuts. Yeah. And that, that so that'll be, that'll be another thing. The first buck I shot this year, girl scored at 111 mm-hmm. and he's got like a seven inch, like, double main beam okay so um you know not really massive i honestly think he's probably a two-year-old i had a little ground shrinkage when i grew when i walked up to him i thought he was a year older bigger than i thought but i wasn't you know i was i was happy with the deer i'd shoot the deer again honestly but i'm gonna send his teeth in and i'm gonna be really interested to see if he comes back at a year and a half Mm -hmm. because if he does that means the same thing as like that deer's first rack he's mid-teens and grew a double main beam yeah. you know what i mean i i gotta imagine he's gonna be at least a two-year-old but i could be completely wrong that deer could be three yeah you know um and if that's the case geez i i, I have no clue how age deer <laughs> yeah so it's one of those things where i i i always say i'm going for a four-year-old but mm-hmm. when you when you really boil it down and break it down like I'm going for a deer that at that exact moment looks good enough for me to shoot. And that has to do with body size and antler size. It's not a hundred percent based off of uh, body. So, uh, you know, even I'm, I guess I'm a little bit of a hypocrite. Yeah. I think we all are. And and, you know, how many times do you, uh, after a set, you talk to a buddy, it's like, man, I saw he's a big deer, man. He's probably four year old. And I'm like, Really, you got to check yourself. Like, yeah. is he though? <laughs> like, yeah. Is he? And one thing, here's another uh, interesting thing. So you see a doe group come out and they just look really lean. And they, they you know, some, even a mature doe doesn't carry the body weight like uh, any buck will. You take mm-hmm. a, a, what I'm going to guess is a mature doe. They come through and a, a spike, a yearling or a two-year-old comes through. They're bigger already than a than the oldest mature doe. They're already yeah. bigger, so they stand next to side, and it gives you a little perspective. And and just to say, geez, man, it's so hard to tell what you know what's accurate. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. by the way, I had a buddy during shotgun season one year. They did a deer drive, and he shot a spike, and it weighed two two fifty or two seventy a spike spike buck yearling two-year-old or something like that gigantic (laughs) body wow it was nuts yeah Yeah. the day the days of 200 pound deer like for michigan i'm gonna speak michigan like back in the day when we when you'd get a uh, somebody killed a 200 pound deer like on the hoof it's like wow yeah that's a big deer now dude i i i would have to like i weigh all my deer i would have to say in the last four or five years the deer i've killed in michigan have all been over 200 pounds and respectively like 250 you know Mm -hmm. um it's just it's just the way it is now 
So I will say this in 2012, I think that if I had to, if I had to guess what the outcomes would be based off of me sending things in, I'm guessing the deer I shot in 2012 is going to potentially, potentially be 2012 or 2018, but I think it's going to be 2012. That deer had, I was at the time probably 240, 240 pounds, and I'm sitting behind this thing and just took two guys to the amount of time it took to, and I never officially weighed it, but I'm confident that deer was over 300 pounds. And so to this day, that deer was the biggest bodied animal that I'd, I'd ever, I'd ever shot. And that like 300 pounds is huge. It, it made That's me look giant. small in the picture. So giant. Yeah. And I shot him in the nostril and the arrow went down his throat. And <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw that video, but it went down the throat and a blade op- just opened up his neck and it hit its carotid. And he just was, or his jugular, and it just, it was over in like 60. It was, it was like murder scene. It was gnarly. It was gnarly. And that was that chest shot that we talked about in the last episode. But he followed, he saw my bottom stick, he followed it up. And right as I released the arrow, pulled the trigger on the release, he dropped, but his head stayed up looking at me. And so instead of hitting him in the chest, I hit him in his nose but his head was up. So he, he basically swallowed the arrow. It was, it was insane. And, (laughs) uh, you know, I don't want to brag about bad shots, but I mean, he died, he died really quickly. Oh, you hit that artery. They're going to die quick. His, his, uh, artery, his throat, his, like, so everything just tore, tore him up and uh, he didn't last too long. So, um, all right. Anything else about the the age of those deer before we move on? No, man. All I, right. I, that's all I really wanted to share. All right, perfect. That was interesting. Now, the re- remainder of this, you know, we've been BSing here for 30 minutes, and, and it's kind of good that we did because I don't see the rest of this conversation lasting too terribly long, but, hell, it could because we're kind of gear nerds ourselves. Mm-hmm. We've, we've talked about – Let's see. Let's kind of recover what we uh, cover what we've talked about. We've talked about um, terrain, how deer move through terrain. Yep. Uh, we've talked about mature deer. Mature deer. Like, yep. Yep. And and mature deer behavior. Yep. Moment of truth. Moment of truth. Okay. And a whole bunch of other things that revolve around how deer use terrain, uh, how mature deer are different from young deer, and then the moment of truth. And and, and now, so we're in the moment of truth, right? And for me, and I'm, I'm guessing you're going to agree that the moment of truth becomes less of an issue when you're confident in your equipment. I know, I know it does for me. I'm not, if I'm not thinking the best quote I ever heard from someone was if you're not thinking about your gear, when you're out hunting, your you have the right gear. For example, when I go out West, I know my boots are great and working the way I want them to because I'm not thinking about my feet and I'm not thinking about my boots. I'm just going. And so let me, let me ask you kind of a question when it comes to your gear, how do you make your decisions on, on what to purchase? Well, this, 
honestly, this happened um, by a lot of trial and error mm-hmm. and a lot of following, thinking I needed to follow trends back mm-hmm. in the day. Mm-hmm. Like the trend thing really got, the trend bug really hit me around 2010, 11, 12, 13 in those areas. Dude, I was buying a new bow in like middle of October, November mm-hmm. and putting new, a new rest on it, new arrows, new broadheads, new, because I saw someone else doing it. Yeah. And that couldn't have been like, it was the worst thing to do, you know? So, um, and I struggled like 2011, 12 or 10 and 11. I struggled mightily just because I didn't have confidence in yeah. my gear. Yeah. And honestly, now that I've gotten a little more mature and everything, and when I'm going into something or thinking about something like I, there's a lot of things I take into consideration, but the one thing is how, how do I have to, or how can I use this piece of gear and not have to worry about it is my first and first first thing like you know i switched to fixed blade broadheads two years ago i don't want to have to worry about it i want to be able to put it on there and it's going to perform yep. and that's what it does yep. you know um the other thing is like i've went as far as you know i use a qad uh rest mm-hmm. okay and a lot of people me included i used to tie the cord just right on the cable mm-hmm. now i use the clamp and everybody's like, why do you use the clamp? That thing looks so stupid and everything. And I'm like, well, when you really think about it, it's really functional and I can fix it in the field if I need to. Yep. And, you know, instead of having a press to be able to spread your string and put a little loop through there and tie it, why not use the clamp? Yep. You know what I mean? So it's little things like that. Um, like right now I'm trying to buy, a, I'm trying to find a quiver, the right quiver for the side of my bow. And it's like, I've been thinking about this for three weeks. What mm-hmm. one do I want to get? Because it's got to it's got to have some functionality, but it's also got to be able to do what I need it to do. Yeah. Um, so when I'm when I'm purchasing things, it's got to be perform where I don't have to think about it, man. And it's I just know it's going to be there. It's like a point guard and a shooting guard. Yep. You know they're going to be there even if you don't see them. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, man. I, I I don't know how many times I've talked about this, but just like <laughs> falling for the marketing, I was that guy too, man. I was like, "Oh, did you see this new bow? I it it says it's great. I got to do it. Oh, I need Sitka. Oh, look at everybody's got Sitka. I need Sitka. Oh, look at everybody's got First Light. I need I need dude. I need some First Light, or I need this, yeah. and I need or whatever. You enter popular brand, and I was the kind of guy. Except for broadheads, really. Except for broadheads. You enter in the name of the brand. And, like, I remember when uh, Elite first came out and how their bows were supposed to be so different and awesome and things like that. And I started shooting them. And, and, and yeah, they were good, but I, I really wasn't making the, the decisions on what I was shooting or my equipment based off of my personal needs. I was doing it because other people were uh were saying how awesome it was and mm-hmm. so i it, it it took me a handful of years i would say somewhere around the 2006 17 18 time frame is when i started to just kind of step away and go what works best for you and that's when i started really focusing on like my arrow setup and where i was hunting how i was hunting um like I, I personally am not a huge, like I like camo. Don't get me wrong. I think there's certain, you know, camo works great in certain situations, but 
I am more interested in what the gear will do for me as far as make me comfortable and keep me uh, comfortable in the woods, not necessarily what the pattern is doing. I just, I, I honestly don't think, uh, uh, camo plays as big as a, a role to us as we think it does. I agree. And, you know, I'm a Sika wearer yeah. and I want, and I want to kind of go down this road too, because Sika is, you know, it's the Lululemon of the hunting community probably, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, for me, for Sika, I, Oh, by the way, that. by the way, that is like not the toughest comparison, right? If you want to be like, no, yeah, the, what's tough? Uh, well, you're the Lululemon of hunting equipment. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it, it really, it probably is, you know, because how priced it is, and, right? And and I won't. It's wear quality. Any, it's quality. It, it's that's the thing, yeah. and I, I, the kind of I guess the point I'm looking or getting across is, you know, I don't wear it because X guy wears it. Yeah. I wear it because there's a couple things in my buying process. When I go to Sika's website, I can filter and say whitetail, and it tells me what I need to buy. Yep. I'm the type of guy that I'll do research, but I want to know from the people that are building this, what is going to work best for me? Mm-hmm. Get me in the right direction. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, you know, so I like that whole process, but also they have, they have, um, whatchamacallit, like uh, they have kits, basically. They yeah. have a, they have a big game kit. They have a turkey kit. They have a whitetail kit. And, you know, it is marketing and everything, but I'm like, I can go in that whitetail section and be like, yeah. It's a good starting point. Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. And honestly, Dan, it fits like a hug. Mm-hmm. Like I love, and anything that's going to keep me in the tree longer. Yeah. I, and I'm sure First Light's the same way. I'm yeah. sure Kuyu is the same way. I'm sure whatever else is the same way. Just get with, with what you want and stop bitching. And if somebody uses Sicker First Light or Sentinel or whatever. Yep. yep. <laughs> you know. Yep. Absolutely. You know, I I, I really don't want to go down the the camo rabbit hole because it just it just becomes talking in circles right yeah uh, and, and and just clothing in general because i hated the marketing so i decided to uh branch out and start going in different directions and so um like i like how huntworth has uh, has some solid options and so i'll be working with uh Huntworth and it's more affordable. Uh, and I think the quote some guy used the other day was it is 70% of 70 or 80% of Sitka as far as quality, but half the price. Mm -hmm. And so, and so that's working man type numbers. You know what I mean? And, and, um, I'll be work. I I like the, the fact that they have solid options and, and so I'll be working with them a little bit this year. But anyway, that that's beside the point. I think a lot of it has to do with what you're comfortable in. And there's a whole yeah. bunch out there. Last handful of years, I've just been wearing like Dickies or or mm-hmm. Carhartt pants because I go through thorns and beggar's lice and cockaburs. And that just doesn't stick to that like the fleece. Like I have a pair of Sitka fleece uh pants that i don't wear anymore because beggar's lice is so thick on it Mm -hmm. so i bet yeah now we've talked about mature deer right we talked about big bodied deer and so 
I want to talk a little bit about, well, I kind of want to focus on bow setup, arrow setup, rest, sight, and really end, like, because we could talk about boots, that's preference. We could talk about tree stands and saddles, that's preference. We could talk about ground blinds, that's preference. But there's a lot more science and numbers behind draw length and arrow weight and, and, and things that are technical that we could talk yep. about with that those kind of things. So when it comes to your bow, your arrow setup, maybe even some of your accessories, how are you picking that type of gear? Uh, same thing, man, as, as far as like, the functionality obviously has got to be there. It's got to feel good. Archery and, and to me, archery is all feel. Yes. It is, it is, you know, when we were at ATA this last year, we were walking around and uh, what I mean by we, David and I, and, and we picked up the bow tech and right when I picked it up, cause I've heard a buddy who was like, man, I shot this thing before we went to ATA. He's like, you should shoot this thing. It's really good. Their carbon one. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I picked it up immediately right off the shelf and I looked at David and you can ask him this. I put it right back down. I said, don't like it. Yep. I could already tell in the grip that I would not like that bow. I didn't have to shoot it. Mm -hmm. That's just, it's all feel mm -hmm. from A to Z. It's got to feel good for me. Right. Um, I shot Matthews for years. I've shot PSC in the past. I've shot Baratree in the past. Now I'm on to a prime mm -hmm. and prime. I shot their bow at ATA. And now, like, so yesterday I was out shooting in the yard before tech and I was shooting at uh, 89 yards and I text David after I was done. And I'm like, man, I've never had a bow uh, hold at long distances. Like I have this set up with mm -hmm. my stabilizer set up and just how, and how it holds. Mm -hmm. I, I, it holds so well and it, the draw cycle on it's so good. So archery for, for me is, is all about feel. If, if I can pick it up before I even shoot it and it feels good to me. Um, and then shooting it, if it's, you know, good on release and everything, that's just a bonus to yeah. me. Yeah. Now that whole process is just the, the thing has to be sit it and forget it kind of deal. Like I just got to know it's going to be there and perform. Yeah. And that's what I look at going into all that whole process. Yeah. I, um, I'm just not a carbon bow guy. Like I don't care what brand makes it. I just don't like the way carbon bows feel mm -hmm. in, in my hand. I'm shooting, uh, this is the third year. I made the decision a couple weeks ago that I'm not going to, uh, get a new bow this year. I'm just going to replace the strings in my current bow and it's a Bowtech, uh, a solution not the ss yeah. but the yep. bowtech solution dude i love that bow it feels it feels good in my hand um i love it at full draw and that's where like you were saying i think that's the most important is you know some people will say oh my god the draw cycle just sucks on certain bows but i'm not even thinking about that the old, because when a buck a deer steps out and you know you're going to shoot it or there's a bedded mule deer or an elk coming your way, whatever it is, dude, do you think the draw cycle matters at that point? <laughs> no. Dude, you're not even thinking about it. You're just like, wham, right? Like I'm, if it didn't have, if it didn't have limb stops or the ability to stop, I'd rip that, the string right off the damn bow every time. Right. And so, uh, I, it, for me, it's all about what it feels like at full draw. Mm -hmm. And if it feels comfortable and I feel solid, that's the kind of uh, a bow that I 
that I like. But with that said, that the bow that I'm shooting right now has a really good draw cycle. I felt like in the past certain bows don't have that. Uh, and when for some reason there's a correlation with bad draw cycle and then a ton of hand shock at the end. But again, that's not something that you're thinking about when you release the arrow on a deer. It's all about right. full draw. And then you let the arrow go. Hopefully the form and the practice you've done all summer has, has paid off. You, like you got a glove on or it's cold. Like, are you going, Oh my God, that I just shot this deer and the hand shock on this bow was so bad. Like nobody's thinking about that at that time. Right. So, I will say one thing I did. Uh, so in 2019, I shot a Matthews verdicts, loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, in 20 or 2020 i think is when they came out with the bow they called the vxr mm-hmm. so and when i the company i was with we were partnered by matthews so we'd get matthews bows every year but going from i'm not a big guy you know i'm like 510 185 pounds not a big guy 28 inch draw i like a 31 to a 32 inch draw that that vxr if i remember right was like a 33 inch draw mm-hmm. every time i would grab it I just felt like it was like a 35 or 36 inch bow. And I'm like, man, I just, and what they designed. Oh, you mean, you mean ATA, uh, axle to axle. Axle to axle. Okay. Yes. 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 Yep. So like, and I think they designed that bow as the riser longer. So it felt, or it, you know, the riser was longer, not the ATA, but the riser was longer. So it, it would hold better at full draw. But man, every time I'd pull that bow back, I felt like I was holding on to an eight foot two by four. Mm -hmm. Like I just felt like it was so big. I ended up getting rid of that bow mm-hmm. and cause I didn't, I didn't like it. Um, yeah. I found out that I live in that 31 to 32 inch ATA is where I need to be. Exactly. And, uh, you know, when I went with the prime rev X, like they have different options. They have a 32, they have a, I think a 34 and a 36. I knew immediately I was going to like that 32 yep. and that's what I went with. Yep. I shot a 30 inch axle to axle one year. And I liked it okay, but my accuracy is way better with a 33. Like, I, I yeah. feel real confident. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm six one. I got a 30-inch draw length. And so that's – I just felt confident with a longer axle-to-axle. Um, yeah. I've never owned a Matthews bow. Really? Yep, never never have. And, and this is going to sound horrible. I, I've never they, – they trust me, they make great bows. They make great – uh, both, but I met a guy a long time ago when I was looking for a bow, and he was a Matthews fanboy. And he acted like such a douchebag to me about all other like, dude, you gotta get a Matthews bow, you know, just like uh, he just he made it seem gross, and since yeah. and to this day, it hasn't rubbed like it hasn't left me the thought of how that guy acted. And how arrogant he was 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 just a huge turnoff, and I and I think about that every time I go bow shopping. Yeah, <laughs> so, I so, can see that. Yeah. Um, all right. The topic of discussion that is happens a lot is arrow weight, and I'll just start off by saying, when I decided to up my arrow weight. I also saw improvements in my accuracy and I've uh, hand shock went away uh, or mm-hmm. was 
lessened. And so I love, and I don't, and I'm not talking overboard where I'm shooting a, a you know, a 200 grain broadhead uh, or a, you know, a, a arrow weight that's like 600 something. You know, I'm not like a huge, I'm not a huge FOC guy. I'm more of a total arrow weight guy. And so when I jumped up from like 380 something to, I think I went 380 to like four something to now I have a, I shoot a total arrow weight. I think it's 524, 524 grains. I've noticed like that is my, that is my comfortable range. That is my confidence range is right there. And I don't, I don't feel, I feel like with the right head on that, like if I'm going to go elk hunting, I'd, I'd put a fixed blade or a, yeah, fixed blade. White tails and mule deer, I'm going to shoot a, I'm going to shoot a, a mechanical. But I, that is what I feel comfortable in. And so far, there's been nothing done once I've moved up to that 524 range as far as marginal shots and things like that. I'm getting pass-throughs. I'm getting deep penetration. And I, I, I feel very confident in that setup, so I'm going to continue to use it. Yeah, and finding that comfort zone is huge. And and two years ago, I started playing with different arrow weights. And um, actually, in 2019, I built my first, like, where I built them. I bought components from Ethics Archery. And I, you know, with the I changed broadheads at that time. And I just ended up being around the 470 grain. Mm-hmm. And I just loved how it shot. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, the arrow craze comes even hotter and it's like, well, I got to go heavier, you know, cause 470 is the light end of a heavy arrow. In my opinion, it's yeah. not like even 520 or wherever you're at. Like, I really don't look at that as like a giant arrow. You know, mm-hmm. when you start getting up to like 600 grains and higher, that's when I'm like, okay, that's a big arrow, yeah. you know? Um, so I, I like that 470 range. Well, I, I messed around with like, I got a 593 arrow. And then I got like a 520 and then a 470. Man, they all of them shot well, but it was more of a personal preference. When I shot that 590, I was like, I literally don't think I could have shot over 40 yards without the deer hearing it because it's just this stupid arc. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I can't, I can't deal with that. Yeah. Like, I need, I need the happy medium. 520 was a little better, but 470 is my sweet spot. It's a dart, it penetrates like a like crazy mm-hmm. i shoot a 125 head all single bevel uh you know fixed blade broadhead it is my money spot yeah. 470 to 480 is where i'm gonna live for eternity because i yeah. just i think if i want to go elk hunting i could use the same thing and just be just fine yep yep and it sounds to me like our numbers are very close you add two inches onto or you know onto your arrow when i'm at 30 and you said you're 28 yeah. So we're sitting yep. relatively, I might be 20 or 30 grains heavier at that point. But, you know, I also shoot a, most of the heads that I shoot, I'm trying to think, are, yeah, are 125. So I'm, are I'm not shooting, uh, no, wait, a 100, excuse me. Yeah, 100, 100 grain yep. head. So, uh, and I trust, I trust that, that head. That's the only product really I've, I've strayed away from one time. And then came back to it and still shoot it today. It's been like 13 years shooting the same same style heads. Um, let's see here. Arrow weight. 
Uh, are you a three fletch or a four fletch guy? Three fletch. Uh, three. It's a question I get a lot. I, I tested around with some four fletch. I didn't really care for them. Um, maybe I had something set up wrong, but it was just to the point where I'm like, okay, I tested it enough. I don't really feel comfortable with it. I'm going back to three fletch. So yeah. I'll be a three fletch forever. Yeah. And that, whether this is accurate or not, uh, for, I'm a four fletch guy. And in wind out west, supposedly four fletch is supposed to perform better. Um, it's also supposed to uh, stabilize the arrow in flight better because of the drag on the back end. And it may slow the arrow down a little bit, but I feel like that's giving me more accuracy. Mm -hmm. And so that with, so my, you match that with the, the, I, I shoot a day six arrow. Love that company. Love that, uh, that arrow. And you match that with a four fletch and then a wasp broadhead, man, I feel like, there's times where I feel like I'm shooting a crowbar down range because it, it's just, it just, in a good way, like, though, yeah, right? in a good way. Like it's just, boom, it's going. Mm -hmm. And this past year, along with, it's the first year I've ever really stopped and paper tuned and, and, uh, did cam timing with, uh, a bow technician at Shields in, uh, Coralville, Iowa. We, we took one day where we did all that stuff. And my bow was money. It's the first time yeah. I've ever had. You ever you ever hear just to hear a well tuned bow, and it's just like, and yep. it's the bow just sounds tight and it sounds efficient. And so I had that this year, and a lot of that has to do, I think, with not only the the tuning to the arrow, but the the arrow setup itself as well. And so I had everything really working for me. And I believe that that is, that's very important. That's a great feeling when you have that, oh, though, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. and it's like you can just pick the bow up. I've been shooting a lot, just about every day recently, and you know, I just go down to my hunting room, pick my bow up, get my arrows, get the quiver or whatever, and I'm just like, I just know I'm going to go out there, and from twenty to ninety, because with tack coming and everything, yep. I'm like, I am dialed. Like, yeah. I can kill anything right there if mm -hmm. I need to. Like, I love that feeling. Yeah, yeah, you feel dangerous walking into the you woods do. You, and, you and, do. and I tell you it kind of comes back to that confidence that we talked about man like when you walk into the woods and you go today is a bad day to be a deer th that makes you just a better hunter right I mean mm -hmm. it, it, you're at the moment of truth you're just like this guy's dead or this and I I haven't reached that comf that that type of comfortability or a comfort, I guess you would call it until the last maybe five years. It, it took me a long time and gear has a lot to do with it. So, um, what, what heads are you shooting now? What'd you say for a head? I shoot a helix broadhead. So it's, a um, it's just a fixed blade, right bevel, single bevel head. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, they've been around for a long time. Um, the FJ two is just, you know, a single one blade, you know, and then let this, this past ATA, they launched, uh, FJ four, which has bleeders, which mm -hmm. I shot those with the, the prototypes last fall. I shot two deer with them, man. Yeah. Just ridiculous. I think they're even more accurate than with the bleeders than without the bleeders. Yeah. And you get more blood with them, man. I, I, I have a broadhead. I'm going to shoot for the rest of my life. Yeah. I really do. Uh, 
you know, and they do work with the podcast and everything like that. But honestly, I started shooting them because they reached out. I'm good friends with the marketing director. And there he was like, Hey, do you want to shoot some broadheads for this year and try them out for us? Cause it was a new thing for them. I'm like, sure. Didn't no partnership or nothing for that first year. And I'm like, okay, I'm onto something here. Like yeah. let's, let's do something. So yeah. yeah, that's, that's the head I shoot. It was in 2000 and what year was it? It would have been 2005. I got my finger cut off. I got money from insurance. And so when I got back to Iowa after moving back there from Alabama, I went to Shields and I bought a brand new Bowtech Tribute. I brought I bought arrows and the first uh, when I when I would call an official first upgrade because I was shooting like some hand me down bow, uh, some bear or an Oneida. <laughs> I used to shoot an Oneida. Um, nice. The first pack of broadheads I ever bought with my own money was in 2000 late 2005 or 2006 was wasp jackhammers and so that's a made in america head and i have killed so many deer with that head that specific head more than any other broadhead combined uh and it's just something that the blood trails that i've had the just the straight damage that it does on marginal shots. And that's really what it what what it comes down to in my opinion is you take your arrow and you or your your um broadhead and you take my broadhead, you put it through the lungs or the heart, dead animal. The true test of a good broadhead comes when you gut shot it or ham it or you know, is that broadhead doing a ton of damage on marginal shots? And if it's slowing the deer down or stopping the deer with that marginal shot, that's a good broadhead to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I did test that out not not on purpose by right. any means, right. not on purpose. I shot a deer in in 2021. No, um, yes, 2021. I'm sorry, and I hit him back and I yeah. got shot him. Yeah. And um, he never. It took me a while to find him, but it, I did find him, and he, you know, it was a, it was a big ordeal, but it, it performed. The broadhead performed. Um, I shot another deer that earlier that year, uh, completely full frontal, mm-hmm. and with my arrow setup, like I told you, it's 470 grains with a 125 grain head, um, 28 inch draw, only shooting 65 pounds. I shot him right in the chest, you know, right like, and came down, and the arrow had six inches of the arrow when I, when I walked up to him was, was sticking out between his legs and went through the whole cavity, Yeah, you know? And right then and there, I'm like, that was a 200, 240 pound deer. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, right then I'm like, this thing is ridiculous. And yeah. that was only the, that was only the single blade. It wasn't like the, you know, the, the bleeders. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, this thing is ridiculous. And that that's what my true Testament came in 2018 for and this this is not necessarily about broadhead, but heavy arrow and in heavy arrow plus fixed blade. I don't know if I would have got the penetration on a mechanical, probably just based off you know physics. No, I wouldn't have. But I I had a Boss uh, four blade on. Um, that's my fixed blade of choice, and so I drew back and I hit the deer. It it was in his ham because he was hard quartering away. It was, it was a shot that you, you know, like I, we talked about it last, last time I'm pretty aggressive on my shot, but it is a shot. I probably should have rethought about taking Mm -hmm. my arrow saved me on that though. So I 
was able to shoot the deer, go through the ham, go through all the guts, and go pop the diaphragm. I think I hit very low uh, opposite side lung, and it came out his armpit. And so another mechanical with my 2021 buck, similar to you, I shot right in the chest, and it was a mechanical. And so I had a huge damage there. And I had, I see, I shoot a 32-inch arrow, I believe it, believe it is. Wow. Yeah, I think it's 32. I mean, I got a 30, I got a 30-inch draw. So yep. I, you know, so it's a 32-inch arrow. And so, what is it? 30, yeah, 32 inches. And I think four inches were sticking out. It, he, I got 28 inches of penetration yep. with that mechanical and that arrow set up. And that was another time where I was just like, damn, like, I, I know I'm, I, I know I'm shooting the right, the right stuff right now. Right. Yeah. And that just goes back to the confidence too. Yeah. When you, when you, you see that kind of stuff, it's like, man, you almost feel a little invincible. Like I feel oh, a little yeah. invincible. Like I could, and it's almost, almost, uh, too, too, uh, to a fault because mm-hmm. it's like you might start thinking like oh, i can start pressing the envelope a little bit i can take just any shot i want well you got to do it within reason too you yeah. know you don't want to be taking shots straight straight up the old hind end or anything like that but right. um i mean do it do it with what you have confidence in but don't overstep thinking that you're uh uh invincible as far as like taking very marginal shots yeah you know yep absolutely another thing that I went, and there's no test that I've done. It, again, it's confidence. I went from a cable-driven uh, rest to now I'm shooting a vapor trail limb-driven rest, and I think I'm getting way better accuracy with that rest with a limb-driven drop-away rest than with the the cable-driven that I was shooting previous. Yeah, I I used to shoot the vapor trail uh, limb driven. I've I've still got one on my my another bow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great rest, honestly. It's very easy to tune. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to work. I guess the, if I had any, I mean, it's full capture as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I have any any beef on it, and this is not much beef, is on like a spot and stalk kind of thing, my arrow will still move, move around, around quite a, a bit. bit. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. Now with my QAD. Um, it doesn't move around as much, mm-hmm. but it still does. But like I said, go back to that. Like, you know, I have had on that vapor trail on like a spot and sock situation, have it ding around and hit, hit the bottom of my site. Maybe on yeah. my, on my QAD, I haven't had that issue. That's not why I switched. I honestly, the reason why I switched is because I had the vapor trail set up on one bow and I had a QAD on another bow and I'm, I just started using the QAD. They're both really good rests. Yeah. Yeah. I I get 100% what what you're talking about. I just put my finger over top mm. of the arrow when I'm yep. when I'm stalking, but I, yep. I I know exactly what you what you mean by that. And so when it comes to price, here's here's how I approach it. If if I was in golf, if I was a golfer too, or if I was shit in stamp collecting or or what whatever the the extracurricular activity is and and hunting then I would have a split budget right and so I would have to be very cautious of what I spend 
if I'm if I am personally going all out into different categories and I'm a you know hey I'm a golfer and I also like to go to baseball games and I like I don't do shit like I don't want I shouldn't say I don't do I don't want to do shit except go hunt right Hmm. we go on vacations and things like that but but what I'm getting at here is those day six arrows they're in my opinion they are the best arrow that is made in the in the industry that and that's that's uh th- they don't sponsor this show at all they don't do they don't do any sponsoring i, I don't think and they're ex- they are probably some of the most expensive arrows as well on the market but i look at that and i go it's my only thing like hunting is my only thing so i want to have the best equipment for uh, what i can afford right back in the day if i was you know 26 year old version of me i wouldn't have been able to afford that it would have been out of my price range but now i make the money i make enough money they last me a couple years and i'm i'm confident in them and so i'm the type of person who pays more for confidence and Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff so i look at some of the prices and how people break it down like i don't feel like i feel like especially in the hunting industry, that price does reflect quality. I agree. Um, definitely. I agree. I will say talking about the arrow thing. Um, I think one of the, one of the best arrows for like a budget arrow, I would call is a gold tip, like Mm -hmm. XT hunter arrow. You know, I've shot those things forever. Mm -hmm. Um, not that expensive they work really well um i I don't have any affiliation affiliation with gold tip but that is like a good budget arrow but i agree like you're gonna get what you pay what you pay for and honestly since i started the podcast like the podcast can fund a lot of my Mm -hmm. like equipment that i need Mm or 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 i'm trying to use so it's a little easier for me to buy things now uh than just using like the family money but i will say like I'm, I'm, I squeak when I walk, I'm so cheap and like, I'll bitch and bitch and bitch about it. Like, man, I, I could figure out reasons why I need that, but I'll bitch and bitch and bitch about for like three weeks. Then it's like, all right, just swipe the card and then I'll buy it. You know what I mean? And it's like, and then it's like, why don't you just have the mentality of buy once cry once? And that's kind of where I'm getting to is like, you can really find, find a, uh, a use for it. And really it's going to help me buy once cry once I'll buy it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and that's why I, I, I feel like the, the message when it comes to gear is very simple. Find something that you're comfortable with it with, find something that is in your budget. I'm me and you were both cry once buy once type guys. Um, outside of that, man, it, it shouldn't be stressful to go be buy hunting equipment and, and, right. and figure out what bow, you should buy it should be fun it's the process for me is fun like i like going and shooting bows and going ooh, what's the difference between this one and the other one what's you know all this stuff and so i i like i have fun in uh in the process i enjoy that type of thing i don't i try not to stress out however i did stress out i was stressing out like do i buy this e-bike or not what do I do? Do I like, should I get this? <laughs> okay. e-bike? Should I... Let me stop you real quick. Yeah. Are you going to, are you going to talk shit on e-bikes? <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. Then I want an e-bike, but I will not spend the money for an e-bike. An e-bike will get me in areas. I can, I can 
tell you ten pros that to one con that why I need an e-bike and how it will help me, I will, I refuse to pay the full price for an e-bike. <laughs> I'm going to say something to you right now, and then I'm going to stop talking. Okay. When I went to South Dakota this year, I usually either hike a mile in, set up camp, then hike another mile or mile and a half to a glassing spot and set up, or I walk a mile in from my truck or however, you know, usually the miles to cut off or maybe a mile and a half somewhere, then you set up and then you go, can go a little bit deeper. Dude, I went in six and a half, almost seven miles with my e-bike in the same amount of time it took me to walk one, maybe two miles. It is, it is worth it. But you got, I, the, the the caveat there is you got to make sure that the land that you want to hunt on has certain like what the rules and regulations are for e-bikes okay? right first right. and foremost yeah. but the benefit of them especially on my my new farm that i had in iowa deer they okay the access to the main part of the farm is through one gate and when i would walk in there the deer on the ridge would see me when I drove my e-bike in there, they just went like this. They just looked at me, and then they went back to doing what they were doing. And it got me the opportunity to get in without spooking deer. And, dude, dude, it, it's worth Okay, it. tell me this, though. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Now, this I, is where I'm at with it. Okay. Okay, so an e-bike, let's just say modestly you're going to be spending like three grand for a bike. Okay. Yes. Now I get it. It it has, you know, pedal assist and all that stuff. And mm -hmm. you don't have to pedal as much. I understand that. I have a really nice pedal bike, mm -hmm. like a mountain bike. Okay. Yeah. I was going to go down the road of decking that thing out with everything I need with racks, uh, you know, everything. So the only, only benefit I don't have is the motor. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I don't mind pedaling. My thing is, and what I could be doing is, like you said, like my one of my farms, we have to pull in like halfway to the farm and I blow a lot of deer out. Mm -hmm. I'm saying park at the road and bike back. So tell me this, if you had a pedal bike and did the same thing, would they, are you saying because it's an e-bike, they do that? Or would a pedal bike be the same thing? A pedal bike would give you the same the same result as far as spooking yep. deer is concerned yep okay the only issue is i'm not pedaling six miles back it would actually <laughs> it would actually be harder to ride a bike than to walk that six miles because you're going like yep. this you're probably having to pick your bike up at times um to or push it up a hill when the e-bike i just i i pedal and then the motor helps me you know assist me the pedal assist right yep uh, I have to disconnect the throttle when I'm on public land because then then it becomes a higher class of bike and then it's not a it's considered a motorized vehicle but when you disconnect mm -hmm. the the throttle then it becomes a bicycle and so as long as long as you are putting in effort then the motor kicks in you're still putting in the uh uh effort and then under the law it's still considered a pedal a pedal type i got you bike so whatever 
Yeah, and I for me, I would go spend two hundred bucks on accessories to deck up my mountain bike. Then, and I could do that ten times to equal that three grand. Right. <laughs> you right. know, so that's where my head was at. Right. Uh, I full disclosure, I also have a really good friend who works at the e-bike company that I bought it from, and so I got a fifty percent employee discount. <laughs> so there's that too, right? Yeah. So there's that. Um, so anyway, I'm telling you, it, it's a, it's, I used to be that guy years ago where like, I'd see a, I'd see an advertisement for an e-bike. I'm like, who the hell can afford an e-bike? Yeah. Like the, the 20, yeah. tw- late twenties, early thirties year old version of me. And now the benefits of it are, are huge. So uh, it, the downfall, not cheap. The upfall, everything. So, um, I just have to make sure I don't get too fat so that I can, I don't break the weight limit on it things like that. So, uh, um, other than that, any other tips, tricks, tactics, thoughts about gear? No, I, I'm just going to reiterate just, you know, the confidence, find yeah. stuff that you have confidence in. And for instance, like I have a release I've been shooting for 13 years yeah. and everybody else is shooting these nice thumb buttons and back tensions. Mm-hmm. Mine literally is a true fire uh like hardcore buckle fold back yep. and the thing is dependable yep like it's, it's stuff like that it's not sexy by any means mm-hmm. you 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 walk up to a line you're shooting next to guys at a 3d course they're gonna look at you like why aren't you shooting the aluminum uv like shoot it self release well because i don't need to spend eight hundred dollars yeah. at least and this one works fine yeah. So use find out what is you know best for your confidence. Get stuff that simplifies it for you and mm-hmm. uh, have fun. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, my man. Well, appreciate uh, another talk here on the fall sessions, man. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to do this, and uh, I guess we'll talk to you next time. Sounds good, Dan. And there you have it, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Tethered Wasp Vortex Hunt Stand. Uh, Woodman's Pal and Huntworth. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day. Huge shout out to my kids. Huge shout out to my wife. Huge shout out to the United States of America. Um, Good vibes in, good vibes out, and we will talk to you next time.